This agreement exchanges membership rights for China in the WTO. The question of whether there is such a diplomatic solution rests ultimately with Saddam Hussein. He has the choice. He can bring himself back into compliance with the agreements he entered into. I will begin my service as Secretary of State with the wind at my back. America is strong, our principles are ascendant, and our leadership both respected and welcome in most corners of the world. I have accepted responsibility for what I did wrong in my personal life, and I have invited members of Congress to work with us to find a reasonable, bipartisan, and proportionate response. That approach was rejected today by Republicans in the House. Hello and welcome back to episode two of Barely Getting By the Long 1990s. As promised, Emma and I are going to take a hopefully not too dry dive into the American economy in the 1990s. And of course, that means by extension that we're going to be talking about the global economy, because this was a period of unprecedented American global dominance. And that means cultural dominance. I know that, you know, most of my cultural references for the 1990s, in which, you know, was when I was growing up as a kid, came from America. I understand that decade almost entirely through the prism of Simpsons references, and I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in that. How about you, Anne? No, you're absolutely not alone. I, I My students are kind of always surprised when I'm teaching American history when I say to them, you'll actually be surprised how much you know about this if you have watched The Simpsons. Um, so you're right that this will be peppered with Simpsons references. And that's kind of reflective, I think, of American cultural and, as you say, economic dominance, that, that kids in Australian suburbs are watching The Simpsons. They're wearing Chicago Bulls jerseys. Um, they're, they're fawning, in my case, over Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm not sure about you, um, Chloe. It's also, Yeah, a little bit. I, I never quite saw yeah, it. But, I've, I've yeah. never got over it, I have to say. Um, it's also, you know, Disney's golden era. We're talking Lion King. We're talking Aladdin. And, and again, you know, we're seeing that kind of nostalgia for, for the 1990s, for cultural the cultural 1990s today. And that, that is that kind of, re- I think, reflection of that um, I, I guess sort of all-encompassing dominance of the United States during this decade. Yes, and I think it would be remiss of me not to take this opportunity to point out that clearly Francis Fukuyama was wrong because, you know, if you remember, Francis Fukuyama thought that ideas and politics led economies. Clearly The Simpsons was not leading American economic dominance of the globe, but rather The Simpsons followed America. <laughs> The extension of American capitalism into all corners of the world. And that's just me taking my little pot shot on behalf of the Marxism that Fukuyama despised so much. But let's talk specifics. So Bill Clinton, he came to power in 1992 as a new Democrat. What did that mean in terms of his approach to the economy? So, so Bill Clinton, as you say, is a is a new Democrat, and he is kind of, I guess, bolstering his credentials by, as we talked about in the kind of first instalment, being tough on crime, but also being tough as he as they would kind of characterize it on things like the welfare state. So part of what Clinton's doing is reforming the welfare state. So welfare is harder to get; it's harder to keep. You know, there's things like limits on how much welfare you can attra- you can 
um, you're allowed to take over your lifetime. So there's those kind of um, approaches to, to economics, I suppose, which are quite hard-headed. But he's also a reformer. So he, he sees himself, I think, with tasked with continuing the kind of American efforts to open up the global economy to free trade after the collapse of the Soviet Union. At home, that means things like repealing the 1933 Glass-Steagall Act. I hope I've pronounced that quite correctly. Um, which basically prevented investment banks, um, insurers and retail banks from merging together, from becoming those kind of super financial entities that are, you know, too big to fail, using air quotes. So this, I guess it's another example in the 1990s of, of political actors thinking that they had escaped history. Um, you might have noticed in that date for that act was 1933. So this act comes out of efforts to claw America out of the Great Depression and the 1990s is kind of seeing this as something that's not going to happen to us again. We've kind of reached the pinnacle of development and this is part of progress. So he's talking about opening up the economy, allowing the kind of free market to reign. Yeah. And just to, you know, just to make it very clear what you're talking about when you're talking about the, uh, you know, these, these mergers, that's, and these institutions that were too big to fail. These are precisely the institutions that would collapse and threaten the destruction of the American and the global economy in 2008. That's right, isn't it? That is exactly right. And it, and again, I think that's why in recent years we've seen such a kind of reassessment, I think, of the Clinton legacy and the legacy of the 1990s in kind of laying the groundwork for economic collapse that we've seen in our lifetime. But at the time, of course, that's not obvious. American economics is infused with confidence and optimism that's kind of embodied by, by Bill Clinton, who's emerging on these reforms. So he's doing those kinds of things at home. But then on the international stage, he's also doing something very significant in, in 1994, which is passing NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. This whole issue turned out to be a defining moment for our nation. I spoke with one of the... Uh, folks who was in the reception just a few moments ago, who told me that he was in China watching the vote on international television when it was taken. And he said, you would have had to be there to understand how important this was to the rest of the world. Not because of the terms of NAFTA, which basically is a trade agreement between the United States, Mexico, and Canada, but because it became a symbolic struggle. For the first time in American history, we have replaced a disastrous trade deal that rewarded outsourcing with a truly fair and reciprocal trade deal that will keep jobs, wealth, and growth right here in America. Okay, tell me about tell me about NAFTA. So I think that's that's important. Yeah, I think it, it's really important, and it's again that's something that's kind of come up again in in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. So NAFTA is the North American Free Trade Agreement, which is an agreement between Canada the US and Mexico that's basically a free trade agreement with with some exceptions that it just um, pulls down trade barriers for things like manufacturing um, and, the, and the movement of goods. It was actually negotiated by a Republican, by George Bush, but it's passed by a Democratic Congress and then, of course, signed by a Democratic President, Bill Clinton. So I think when, to go back to our earlier conversation, I think when Clinton is talking about the kind of golden era of bipartisanship that he yearns for, it's a lot of what that yearning involves on the part of kind of political and economic elites is that economic bipartisanship where everybody kind of believes in free trade and globalization and the the untold benefits that that can kind of bring everybody and this is how NAFTA is kind of positioned so Clinton at the time said it would create 
200,000 jobs in the US within a year. So this is the kind of extreme positivity I think that's surrounding these trade agreements. Of course, that's not exactly the result. Okay, so yeah, let's let's unpack that a bit because, you know, I think there are a lot of debates these days about what exactly we mean when we talk about job creation. And I think most informed observers will always say there are there are lots of things that underlie that, you know, underemployment being a perfect example of where the fact of job creation and the number of jobs created might actually not correlate to either the quality of work or the, you know, or, or fair compensation for labor. So I mean, what does that mean for the auto industry? Because I know that that has been a pressing issue and that's been one of the real keys to, to Donald Trump's success. It absolutely has. And, and the auto industry is kind of held up, I think, as one of those, um, I guess, iconic examples of the destruction of free trade and the impact that it had on the American economy in particular. So partly as a result of NAFTA. And as you kind of, as you hinted at, I think it's important to note that it is really hard to kind of disentangle the effects of a free trade agreement from broader economic trends in that sense. So I, I don't think it's really helpful to say that NAFTA caused the loss of this many hundreds of thousands of jobs or whatever. But but basically, you know, to put it very simply, what happens partly as a result of this free trade agreement is that a lot of the auto industry shifts from the United States, from places like Michigan into Mexico, where manufacturing is cheaper because labour is cheaper, because there's less regulation, et cetera, et cetera. So I I think a fairly similar story. And then in the US, you also see as a result of that, a kind of wage suppression because companies can say, well, we can go to Mexico for cheap labour. So if you want to keep jobs here, we're going to pay you less or we're not going to increase your wages as we have been increasing them by, you know, certain percentages over time. So we see wage suppression, I suppose. And what that kind of all means is that the benefits of these trade agreements flow to a very particular set of people um, and basically end up exacerbating inequality. Okay. So, I mean, that's pretty comprehensive distillation of the, the you know, I guess what, how we look back on the 1990s, because there was, you know, for all we talk about in this period of incredible prosperity it was also a period when that prosperity was accruing to a very small minority and for people of influence that sort of crept by them unnoticed and partly because they were the beneficiaries of that and again it's something that is wreaking its vengeance now in our current polarized politics and mistrust of people like like hillary clinton yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think there's been an, a, a real failure, as you say, of people to recognise what is going on there. So the the Clintons, again, to kind of individualise it, were, were sort of taken aback in, in 2016 when Hillary Clinton said that Bill would be an economic advisor and, and people were kind of slamming her for that. But I think it, it is exactly as you say, it's a kind of failure to recognise the the deep-seated problems that this kind of free trade and trade liberalisation creates because they don't trickle down. Like often I think people like the Clintons would say that part of it is just a kind of, we just have to tweak the market, we just have to do things a little bit differently, but the overall approach is sound. The overall approach of trade liberalisation is sound. And I think increasingly today we're seeing pushback against those ideas. But in the 90s, they absolutely reign supreme. Okay, so let's talk about what that meant for the world, because obviously NAFTA is, you know, it's a, it's a an interregional agreement that covers Canada, the Canada, the USA, and Mexico, and that is, you know, and that, 
effectively what that says to me is that the US is expanding its influence and it already had huge influence over the world economy. What else was happening in the 90s? Well, I think you're basically right to say that Clinton is is taking this approach um, to the region, but he's also pushing it out into into the rest of the world. So it's a continuation, as I said, of this American project of of trade liberalisation across the world. What that means in during the Clinton administration is is things like the normalisation of trade the trade status with China. So China in 2000 is kind of embraced by the global economy becomes much more deeply integrated with the global economy, which ends a process that began in 1972 with with Nixon's visit to China. But at the beginning of the 1990s, that didn't seem obvious because with the Tiananmen massacre in 1989, it looked like China would become a kind of global, or I guess stay, a global pariah and would become kind of even more isolated from the world. But that's not what happens. Clinton helps to drive the kind of normalisation of, of a relationship with China into this global economy. And that partly happens through the creation of the World Trade Organization, which happens under Clinton in 1995. Okay, so what, I mean, the World Trade Organization is a, it's absolutely an institution that a lot of people will be familiar with. And it feels like, to me, it's, it feels like it's something that has always been there. What, what did we have before the WTO? So it kind of, I mean, in, in a way, you know, we have had the WTO, I think, since the 40s. But basically, the World, the World Trade Organization grows out of something called the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or GATT, which is established in 1947, with the aim of eliminating trade barriers and, and tariffs, basically with the aim of liberalising the global economy after the Second World War. The GATT kind of descends, I, I think, into a kind of stalemate in, in the 80s and 90s, where basically negotiations stall. But it's in 1994 that they kind of, I guess, break out of that, um, partly because Clinton plays a driving role in it and and agree to establish the World Trade Organization. So GATT, which is basically just a set of rules, kind of governing economic relations, turns into an international organization with things like a secretariat. Um, and Okay, so it's sort of formal, it's formalizing a process and a set of rules that were already there. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and it means, and you know, it means that when when Trump say threatens to leave those <laughs> to, to not to to leave those rules and to leave the WTO effectively, that's a much more dramatic consequence. Potentially, yes. I mean, I think like a lot of things Trump Trump threatens, it's not necessarily likely to come true. But the the World Trade Organization essentially comes to underpin the global economy. It re- it regulates the global economy. You you sort of can't participate. In a global economy, you can't do things like sign trade agreements without being a member of the WTO or adhering to its rules. All right. So what this is amounting to for me is a, a kind of a consensus that's emerging that is about ex- you know extreme trade liberalisation and free trade at all costs and the dismantling of all trade barriers. What does this what does this mean for other for other nations? We've talked a little bit about China, but tell me about the rest of the world. It, it absolutely is a consensus, um, which is appropriately named the Washington Consensus, which is a term coined in that most important of years, 1989. And I think kind of the establishment of the WTO, things like NAFTA, um, they represent that the triumph, I think, of Washington, of the United States and the United States approach to the global economy, which is to kind of tear down 
any and all protections of domestic economies, regardless of their status. So it, it refuses to allow developing or emerging economies to protect themselves as they develop. It insists on opening them up to the market entirely um, under the assumption, the very American kind of Reaganite assumption, that the benefits will trickle down to everybody. And there's that term, trickle-down economics. We're bound to get to it eventually. So, yeah, we've uh, this episode has been concerned with power and powerful institutions, the presidency, Congress, weirdos on the internet. What sort of pushback was there? So there's, there's pushback against things like NAFTA, um, fairly early in the in the 1990s but they're kind of regarded as i guess fringe the the establishment consensus is that these are good and necessary reforms on the kind of you know fukuyama's march towards the triumph of of liberal economics but it sort of becomes fairly um, obvious fairly quickly that the, you know the promised hundreds of thousands of jobs aren't appearing, growth is not appearing, um, inequality is rising. So that by the end of the decade, the the WTO in particular becomes the focus of enormous protests. And so in 1999 in Seattle, there's an, a huge protest to kind of end the decade. So, you know, we close out the decade with these massive protests against the WTO, but nothing really changes. And we don't have time now, but I think that's absolutely something that we should come back to, even if it is outside of the te- the technical scope of the 1990s, but it's certainly part of the long 1990s that we're talking about, which is why that came to nothing, except perhaps belatedly in 2016, the election of Donald Trump. So... Next week in Barely Getting By the Long 1990s, we are going to leave behind the new Democrats and talk about new Labour. And it will be my turn to take the wheel as I take you on a tour of British Labour, the 1990s, the end of Thatcherism, the Royals. We are going to have a very long discussion of Princess Diana and my favourite topic of all in that decade, Britpop. Thanks for listening. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen.